Hi, welcome back to Bookish. My guest this week is Dr. Amanda Foreman. This was such a thrill to get to speak to her. She uh, is the author of several books. Uh, one of them is Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire, which was adapted into a film with Keira Knightley. It was a book I devoured. I remember reading it as soon as it came out and thinking how beautifully and elegantly written it was and how a piece of history need not be dry and desiccated and out of reach, but could be as lively and informative as that. Her second book, A World on Fire, An Epic History of Two Nations Divided, is about the role of the British in the American Civil War, which was a really interesting read. She's currently a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Her latest work is the BBC documentary series, The Ascent of Woman. And her book on the history of women, The World Made by Women, will be published this year. I cannot wait to read it. Our discussion was so much about women and the role of women and the female point of view and where that fits into both literature and history and how literature and history have informed one another and where they differ. It was a really fascinating and provocative interview this. I was so thrilled to do it. I was so grateful to it for making the time for me twice. I had to cancel once because I wasn't well. And sadly, we didn't get to do this face to face, but we did it as a FaceTime on the laptop, which was a new experience for me. And I'm really grateful to uh, Amanda for enabling that and being willing to play along. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I thought it was absolutely fascinating to listen to Amanda talk about her books. Amanda, thank you so much for doing this podcast. I am so delighted to have you on the um, this episode. I'm really thrilled. Thank you for agreeing to do it. I was just explaining to Amanda, this is my first try at doing a non-in-person interview. So everyone's going to bear with me if it feels less fluid than it does usually. Thank you for picking your books. Was it hard to pick your five formative books? Was it easy? I found it very hard, actually. I'm not one of those people who has a favourite colour or a favourite number no. or, or a favourite book. And so narrowing it down really was quite painful. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And I think it's, you know, it's why also I, I try and be really sort of explicit about it. it they're not necessarily your favourites. They're, your, they're the ones that shaped you. They're the ones that, you know, formed you in some interesting way that, that were pivotal for, you know, moments in your life or sort of emotional emotional development. Did that help as a as a part of the remit or was that still too wide a field to have to dive into? No, that was enormously helpful, actually, because these books are books that made me think mm. in various ways, mm -hmm. which is different from, you know, the approach where, you know, you just loved a book and really enjoyed it because it was a page turner. <laughs> right. Yeah. I find that the favourites also change so quickly, whereas the ones that you, I, I had my editor interview me for this uh, when I did season one just to have an idea of what it was like to sit in the hot seat and it was interesting because I found that f there were three that were just immediate absolutely non-negotiable uh, and in a way that the five had I been asked for my five favorites would have been far more slippery and hard to you know hard to maintain hard to unequivocally say yes that one definitely because because I find favorites shift so much according to where you are in your life or what you've just read or whatever I think that's absolutely right that we are messy and complicated creatures and our tastes should change yeah. and and how we feel about books should change if yeah. we're going to stay 
alive yes. and current and engaged. Yes. Yeah. Were you always a reader? Do you come from a reading family? I very much come from a reading family. My father was a screenwriter. Mm. And so books and writing and being in creative industries was in our lifeblood. It was how we all, my brother and myself, he's also a writer, mm. Jonathan. It was just part of who we, who we are and who we were. Did they read to you? As, as it was, Is that a memory you have? I don't remember, but I know they did. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very much like my own children. I don't think remember me reading to them, but... You know, I know I did. But evidence <laughs> evidence would suggest that you did. I read your father was blacklisted. That must have been a terrible time for him and your family. Was that was that is that right? Well, it was a terrible time for him. I wasn't born at the time. Oh right. I'm the product of a second marriage. Mm-hmm. So he was in his fifties when right. I was born. Mm-hmm. But it certainly shaped our lives and I'm a product of that blacklisting. Mm. It was during the McCarthy period. Many filmmakers were blacklisted. My father was blacklisted because he refused to name names when he was subpoenaed to Mm. appear in Congress. Mm -hmm. He was perfectly happy to talk about his political affiliations and beliefs, but he refused to throw anyone else under the bus. Mm -hmm. He was able to leave the United States with hours to spare. He got on a boat and had his passport, and literally the next day his passport was revoked, and he arrived in England as a political refugee. Wow. How extraordinary. And did he continue writing from England or was that was that possible? Was that was that something one could continue to do? So when he first arrived, he discovered that the blacklisting had followed him across the Atlantic mm. and he could only write anonymously. Uh, so he could be a ghostwriter for others. Mm. And the, the whole experience, though, had left him so angry that for two years he had writer's block. Really? Yeah, it just that anger, that sense of betrayal consumed him. Mm. And and I think it was a very difficult time and it obviously led to the breakup of his marriage. Mm, yeah, I'm sure. How fascinating. I, I fact, writer's block to me is is so intriguing because it seems to me it, this is not this is not just a construct. This is an actual meaning it's not just an abstraction. It seems to me something that actually happens, that there is a sort of neurological, psychological thing that happens that means that creates this huge insurmountable impediment. It's more than just, oh, I'm not I'm not feeling it today. That backs up my my theory that writer's block is a real thing. <laughs> that it's not just laziness. I think it is I think it is a real thing. I remember after I finished making a documentary series on the history of women mm. called The Ascent of Woman, for about eighteen months afterwards, I wasn't able to work on the book that was meant to accompany the series. Mm. Wow. And, uh, you know, and it was it was embarrassing. My publishers were cross. Mm. Uh, people were waiting for it. And I simply couldn't do it. Mm. Uh, I, you know, and if I could have given my finger mm. in order to get back <laughs> to writing, I would have done it. Mm. And so it's it's funny how it can just happen. I think I was exhausted. I'd put so yeah. much into making the series. I had literally nothing left for a while yeah you'd already written it essentially with in that it was a four-parter for netflix is that right that's right yeah and yes i had to some extent at least written half of it but that half had taken so much out and and the filming of it had taken 26 weeks which was a long time away from the family i have five children and the emotional toll it took on them i think made me feel so guilty mm. that I, I couldn't work yeah. for months afterwards. Yeah, I can imagine. Do you read when in that? Did you read in that time? Was that something that was comforting or debilitating or contributed to sort of moving through it? 
I found myself doing a lot of gardening, actually. Really? Yes, that being outside and getting dirty and hot and sweaty and creating something that was artistic and beautiful, but also flexible and mutable so mm. that I could change it from day to day. And, and it was incredibly healing. I did mm. more gardening than I did reading. Yeah, lovely. What a lovely meditative thing to do. I can understand. And also how nice not to have to intake anymore. There's no stimulus required from, from gardening in the sense of more words or images on the page or anything. It's, it's uh, a calmer activity. Yes, it, it, really, it really was. I think I was just mentally exhausted and mm. therefore to do something physical was very healing. Yeah, I'm sure. Let's talk about your first book, the first one you gave me, and we can amend the order at any time if you'd like. This one I loved seeing on the list is A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett, which was published as a book in 1905, but was serialized between 1887 and 1888. When did you read this? How old were you? I was around eight or nine when I first read it. Mm. And it was one of the first books that I read again and again and again. Mm. And what I absorbed from it was the message that grown-ups can be terrible people mm. and that it is up to the child herself to create a moral universe mm. that she can live in and live with herself in no matter what her external circumstances are. Mm which is a very sophisticated very. message. I was going to say, you got that at eight or nine. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't mean that I myself was um, sophisticated, but that Burnett's message itself is a very, is a very sophisticated one. And sure. I think that she expected her readers to be able to absorb it in some way, perhaps not put it in so many words at that age. Mm -hmm. But that's what she was saying. And it was incredibly empowering because it was telling young girls that even if they feel helpless in their own lives or that, that the object of other people's designs or thoughts or desires, that doesn't necessarily or shouldn't mean that they should give up their internal sense of who they are. Hmm. That's such an interesting reading. I, I think I... Um... Well, for those that don't know the book, it's about a young girl called Sarah Crewe who starts off at this boarding school in England and I'm going to just praise this badly, but arrives as a sort of little princess and her father dies and she's quickly orphaned and relegated to the attic where she's made to go and live and sort of help work at the school. Is that right? I think that's right. I, I that's right, yes. And then an interesting man moves in next door. I think he's Mr. Carrisford, I think. And he has an Indian servant called Ramdas who has a monkey and the monkey creeps into Sarah's attic room and she starts the relationship with the little monkey and then by extension with Ramdas, the servant, and then with Mr. Carrisford, who takes pity on this orphan who's being mistreated in the attic and sends over little by little some sort of luxury items and little by little she manages to furnish this attic and make it comfortable. It's never a replica of the enormous luxury that she had when she first arrived but there are traces of the comforts that she used to have and meanwhile she you know, manages to make the best of the situation and befriends other, even less fortunate children in the school until at the very end, I 
think Mr. Carrisford adopts her, doesn't he? Or he discovers that he was somehow responsible for her father's death or... That's right. So there's this dual story going on that on the other side of the wall of this school, which is this select seminary for young ladies, is Mr. Carrisford, who, by amazing coincidence, was her late father's business partner. Oh, that's right. And the two of them had a venture together in developing diamond mines in India. And unfortunately, there was a moment when it looked like the whole thing had fallen to pieces. Her father then had a nervous breakdown and died of quote-unquote brain fever, believing that he had lost everything. Mm. And because he was already a widower and died having had this nervous breakdown, nobody knew where he had deposited his daughter, what school she was in, even what country she was in. So when Mr. Carrisford then discovered that, in fact, diamond mines were working fine, that it was not a disastrous business deal, and wanted to make amends and find... Sarah Crew, he couldn't. He didn't know nobody knew where she had gone. And right. so he then spent the next few years looking for her, conducting the search, not realizing that the little orphan that he would see going out into the cold, cold snow, carrying her basket of provisions for the nasty mean cook who <laughs> beat her and bullied her, was really Sarah Crew. Yeah. <laughs> but I love what you're saying about the message of to create one's own moral universe and that that's what Sarah Crew is doing in that attic. And I, I was so struck by as a little girl, I read that book many times, although you clearly more often and embracing it more succinctly than I did. But I was so struck by this idea of this miniature world that she made up there, that she had a retreat of her own. I think I, as an only child, related hugely to having a world that I had to populate, that I had to fill, that I, a, a sense of family that I had to make with my dolls or my little, you know, chip teacups or whatever. So that, that to me resonated. But I'm struck that you extend that to her needing to create a moral universe for herself too. And that's, that seems to me a really interesting point of view I don't think I'd thought of that before well I suppose that's when I was first encountered this idea that history is meaningful because Mm. for Sarah Crew the way she creates this moral universe where she's able to inhabit something other than her truly miserable conditions Mm. is that she reads history books and that that's interesting I don't remember that detail at all well it's yes I suppose it's you know we it's horses for courses and what we we take yes so there's a there's a marvelous scene in, in the book where she recreates the idea that they're prisoners of the Bastille and she tells these stories to her oh, her friend who's the other maidservant in the attic about how the prisoners of the Bastille were able to survive and they compare yes. themselves to this and they think about Marie Antoinette and, you know, so they're... For them, hi- history is living history. It's lived mm. history. Mm. And that's what helps them and her to keep going. Mm. That sense of connection. Do you remember knowing what the Bastille was? Do you remember knowing about that? No, I had no idea. I didn't know. I didn't know, you know, I was eight or nine. I didn't really know anything other than there was something that they called, she called the Bastille, and that there were these prisoners, and and it was set in history, and and it seemed very exciting, you know. Did you play (laughs) Um, history games as a kid? Was that anything you and your brother did? Yes, my my brother was a very precocious child, Mm. uh, and so it was great fun growing up with him because he really was was and is a voracious reader so Mm. the two of us had an extraordinary world going on at all times I think really that must have been wonderful for your parents to see I think particularly for your father as a storyteller that must have been exciting my husband's a screenwriter and 
I'm an actress and I, nothing gives me greater pleasure than watching Billy, our five-year-old, spin an enormous narrative out of nothing. It just, my heart blooms when I watch her. I feel like, oh, we're doing something right that you know how to tell a story with that kind of success. I totally agree with you. Um, I, among my children, the youngest are twins. Mm. And for years and years and years, they've had this ongoing imaginary game based around friend. Because <laughs> they haven't friend. got enough in the family. Wow. Yeah. yeah, you know, so the, the, the game of friend with, it has its ups and its downs and its plot devices and whatever. And the rest of us, the other three children, as we just watch this, the game friend unfold and it's hilarious <laughs> how old are the twins well they're now 10 about to go on to 11 and so they don't play it so much but i mean it was this this enormous sort of trope in our lives about playing friend Does, and were others invited to play friend or is it just yes, a we, private thing? no we, we could all join in and play friend too and does friend exist is as a third entity is friend an actual person no, friend was the identity that you could assume, and then things happened to friend, or you know, I mean, it was it was amazingly sort of simple and complicated at the same time. The best ones, but I love the story of friend. That's so great. While well, we're still on Little Princess, did you read? Did you like her other books? Were you a fan of Little Lord Fauntleroy or Secret Garden? Was it really Little Princess? I, yeah, I mean, I liked her other books too. Mm. I did find the Yorkshire dialect of The Secret Garden slightly irritating, to yes. be honest. Yeah. As a child, really having to stop and decode the accent. What Dickens was ever do saying. It. Didn't, yeah. yeah, it didn't do it for me. Yeah. yeah. When I became a mother and then read that book, mm. uh, Little Princess, to my own children, mm. I actually found myself crying. Did you? Um, in sympathy for the descriptions of Sarah Crew's sufferings. Yeah. That's. I mean, as a child, I mean, I you know felt sorry for her, you know, sure. and always felt much happier at the end when everything yes. had worked out in a neat little bow. But as an adult, coming back to the book and then reading the description of the appalling abuse that mm. this girl takes at the hands of that headmistress, mm. headmistress's sister, the mean girls at the school, mm. the staff who formerly waited on her and now she waits on them and the mm. cook, the starvation, she goes to bed hungry most days, most weeks, she's wet, she's cold, she's filthy, she's no heat in her bedroom. The catalogue of horrors that this child goes through as a mm. mother mm. struck me mm. so forcibly I couldn't I couldn't believe it was so terrible actually I know it's um, funny isn't it revisiting children's fiction I find that it, it, you 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 can't believe the horror that you endured as a child reading that that you that sort of you skated over but the best the best children's fiction is the darkest in in my mind it really is I think one, that's right yeah. as long as there's hope I don't yes. think simply dark children's books work and I mean when I first read The Hunger Games mm. I was troubled by it and I felt that the murder of the little girl in book one which mm. takes place during as a, this competition and they these children have to fight for the to the death and Katniss the heroine witnesses the violent k- killing of a child who mm. I think is between the age of 10 or 8, 9, 10, 11 and I did wonder whether a line had been crossed in children's literature, Hmm. a serious psychological line that had gone from insight entertainment to uh, exploitation. Hmm. Because, yeah, pain and suffering is something that I think YA authors and children's authors should be very good at. Mm -hmm. And it is their way of messaging and relaying those aspects of the world to children in a manageable way. Mm -hmm. 
And I wasn't sure whether with Susan Collins that the, the idea and the, the execution of the Hunger Games has strayed from that point and it's pandering to the baser motives of the world and exploiting them. Mm. And it was actually a new low, low in mm. children's literature. That's interesting. And where do you come down in the end on reflection? Do you, do you, are you still ambivalent? Or do you feel it, it was the inciting event that was required in order to unleash the trilogy? Do you I feel that, that it really depends on the age group that it's marketed sure. at. Yeah. That, you know, for 15, 16 year olds, there's a different set of parameters and moral parameters that go yeah. into writing. But I think this book is since marketed at 10 and 11 year olds. Mm. That does trouble me. Yeah. I don't think that 10, 11 year olds, tweens have the emotional and psychological maturity to handle those concepts yet. And yeah. it's simply inuring them to what is actually a shocking act and making it by rendering it as to a story mm. where things basically end up okay in the very end. Mm. Robbing the children of the importance of knowing that is a shocking act. That is yeah. not what happens in real life. It's interesting. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. I, I'm with you. I think the inoculation against violence is, is a dangerous a dangerous thing to fall into with children. I was as you know, mine are much littler than yours. Mine are five and three, and I'm struck by something everyone knows, but that every single Disney movie begins with these wretched children being orphaned. I mean, there just isn't one from Bambi onwards where the mother doesn't die, and I I question that too. I I, I find myself going, I don't know, I don't know why they all why why does the shipwreck have to happen in Frozen? Why can't these girls just be just have slightly absent parents or remote parents? Why can't the parents have gone away and decided to rule another country? But I also, you know, then the storyteller in me goes, I I, I get it. I get that there's an imperative here and we have no stakes if we have the parents around. But I, I don't love the trope either. Yeah, well, it's a very it's a very interesting question because you know, the death of the parent as a plot device. How close is that in modern storytelling to rape as a plot device, which mm. we have you know, in modern television mm -hmm. all the time? All the time. <laughs> and so are we looking at something which is a psychological necessity, as, you know, Bruno Brettelheim would have argued mm. or any of the you know, Freudian psychologists would have said, ah, oh, yes, but, you know, there's the child's greatest wish and fear mm. that you know, they lose their parents. And it's only by allowing them to self-actualize these fears through storytelling that they are able to process these violent thoughts that they themselves have and put them into a you know, better place. Right. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> TBD. On a much gentler note, let's talk about your second book, Pride and Prejudice, which was published in 1813 by Jane Austen. Tell me why this is on your list. Well, I read this as a teenager. And for any woman who reads that book in particular, I think what strikes a woman is that this character, the Eliza Bennet, is clearly the heroine of her own story. Mm. And that is actually in very short supply. Mm that Eliza Bennet is a heroine in the sense that she's also the human in the story. She makes mistakes. Mm -hmm. She learns. She triumphs in the end. Mm -hmm. She grows as a character. And unlike most other set books that you have to read as a teenager, her encounters with men are interesting and important, but they don't change her. She changes herself. Mm. They don't teach her. She teaches herself. Mm -hmm. So when I read that book, it, it stayed with me because as a teenager, I felt 
very disempowered. And this was a message of hope. Mm. Why disempowered, do you think? Just is that is that standard for teenage years? I think most teenagers do feel disempowered. I close to I, adulthood, but you know, not the, close the, enough to yeah, have it. It's sort of you know, the, right, the rite of passage. Sure. And I didn't become a writer. I didn't know I wanted to be a writer until I was in my 20s. Hmm. And all through my life, until I started writing my first book in my mid-20s, I had this recurring dream. And it was so powerful and so strong that I just assumed that I would have it, A, for my entire life, and B, that it was a normal dream, that everyone else had this dream too. What was it? I would dream that I had something important to say, and at that moment, a number of things would happen. Either all my teeth would fall out, Mm. or my mouth would be stapled shut. Wow. Or I would start talking, and blood and gore and whatever would start coming out of my mouth, so I couldn't speak. Wow. And I just thought, well, that's just a, it's like a normal dream. Like, yeah, normal, you fly, standard. You know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And did it stop when you started writing? Yes, and um, I've never had it since. Really? Mm, it's extraordinary because it was so real and it was so terrible. How and, amazing. And, and this was, in, and when you, was Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire, that was your first book, is that? That was my first book. And yeah. I started it as a PhD. And I was during when I was writing it as a PhD that, and I mean, and the book together, so I was in my mid-twenties, that the dream stopped. Wow. How extraordinary. <laughs> and do you credit Pride and Prejudice as a book that gave you a sense of agency, something to sort of aim for as a, as a young woman, of, of being someone who could speak out, whose voice wasn't, whose mouth wasn't stapled shut, as it were? That's right. She is someone who's able to find her voice, mm. wants to find her voice, is on a search to find her voice. Mm. There are, I believe, three aspects that divide men and women and have done for millennia. Mm. And that is the unequal division of agency, autonomy, and authority. Mm. And write that down. <laughs> <laughs> there's another thing that Jane Austen says in Persuasion, where she has the heroine, Anne, say to, uh, I believe, her fiancé, who comes back to her, Henry, the, the sea captain. She says, you know, men have had the power of words on their side mm. for centuries Mm. and by depriving us of an education Mm. and a literary tradition of our own you've taken those words away from us Mm. and it's one of the very few times that Jane Austen ever says anything explicit Mm. about the state of male-female relations or what it means to be a woman in the 18th century Mm. otherwise everything is very oblique. Mm. Have you always been conscious of your gender if that's not too strange a question is that something you have have you always felt your femaleness in the world yes i i have Mm. i i felt that my education my schooling was inferior to my brothers did you and i really did and it made me very angry Mm. that the low expectations that came with my education compared to the high expectations that went with with his fascinating was terrible i mean i mean i went to school in the 70s and mm. i went to you know an 80s and i i went to perfectly good nice girls boarding schools in england mm-hmm. and it was perfectly acceptable for many of the girls then in my years my year not to go 
to university, mm-hmm. but to go to flower arranging school or secretarial college mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. And I don't dismiss any of those occupations because actually I love flower arranging and you know, work <laughs> stuff. I'm, I'm not knocking it, you know, and you can be a florist, you know, and, make a, and be a student. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a valid career. But the, the level of acceptance that, that what could be given to a girl that would make society or parents go bananas if it was if it was given to a boy yeah was in my face mm. <laughs> interesting so uh, you then went to sarah lawrence is that right or or, or oxford or... i did right i went to sarah lawrence first which is this marvelous liberal arts college in in new york state sure and then i did my um doctorate and master's at oxford Mm. Did With that a little detour to Columbia? Did that? Oh, just the worst institution. Sorry for that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, did that do anything to help redress the sense of of parity or not? Did you? Yes, it did. Did it? I, I, I mean, I, I yes. I mean, I arrived at Sarah Lawrence a very angry person. Mm. I felt like I had been let down, mm. and I felt hard done by. I had a sense of grievance, which I don't have anymore at all. Yeah, but I did it. I did at the time. Yeah, interesting. Um, let's talk about your third book and where that fits into this. Your third book was Lord of the Rings, which I'm going to allow, even though it's a trilogy, um, <laughs> unless you unless you were specifying one of them, which is, of course, by J.R. Tolkien and was published between 1954 and 1955. When did you read this? Well, I read it when I was at Sarah Lawrence. You did. Uh-huh. And I mean, it, it says something about my education that I hadn't even heard of it. Mm. I didn't even know it existed mm-hmm. until I went to Sarah Lawrence. Um, Who gave it to you? A student who said, wait, you've never, a fellow student, wait, you've never heard of Lord of the Rings? Oh, really? In fact, she was called Galadriel. Um, Great name. Was she, was she in I mean, Lord of the Rings? It's an amazing name. Yes. And she was named after one of the characters there. And, uh, but I mean, Sarah Lawrence was this marvellous place where, I mean, there was another, there was another student who was called, and is now a writer actually, called Galaxy Craze. Um, <laughs> it was just, it was just, it was just a fantastic place to be. Amazing. Um, but I, I mean, I, I laugh because, Lord of the Rings is cited over and over again in most polls as one of the 10 best books ever written. Mm-hmm. It's also the book that intellectuals, when you ask them what they think, most like to dismiss and pan mm-hmm. because it's it's so beloved by quote-unquote ordinary people. Right. And therefore it's totally suspect. Therefore must be inferior, yeah. Yeah, it must be inferior, you know. But because I hadn't read it as a child and I read it as a college student, I feel like I came at it fresh. Mm. No one had shaped my views about what I should or shouldn't think about this book Mm. and on reading it it struck me that two things number one the historicity of that tale so although it's obviously you know it's fantasy Mm. that that Tolkien's absorption in uh, Norse tales old English Beowulf with a tinge of James Fraser's The Golden Bough, that sense of the essential of what in this country you might call Joseph Campbell's Hero of the Thousand Faces, mm. the sense of the kind of the, these, you know, mythologies that are the building blocks of many cultures and many civilizations that he wove into a, a kind of modern tale mm. uh, was really, I found it very moving. I suppose you could say that in, in every aspect of what I've been moved by, there's a sense of history. Mm. Or a sense of connection to the past and how it, it informs us and makes us and shapes us and is in our words, is in our appreciation of of language, of mm-hmm. arts, of possibilities, of human frailties, of human success, of mm-hmm. loss, tragedy, hope, continuation. 
And, you know, I, I mean, obviously there are lots of flaws in Lord of the Rings. I mean, there's essentially one woman who wants to be a man mm-hmm. until she meets another man <laughs> who makes it feel like a woman. You know, I mean, it's not perfect. So, mm-hmm. you know, how we judge these things today. But nevertheless, it's such a feat that to say that it's not an intellectual book is ridiculous. It is I a very intellectual book. Agree, yeah. And he also managed to write, I mean, leaving aside some of the poetry, which is not my favourite stuff in that book, his descriptions, rather like what Alexander Dumas was able to do, and not every author can do this, that the descriptions themselves, and they're long, I mean, you know, endless descriptions of walking into the Vale of Mordor or whatever, you know, Mm. bring the narrative forward. Mm. That They're not simply there for the the sake of a few pretty phrases, Mm -hmm. that Every single sentence has a purpose, mm. even when it's describing the shape of the trees. Sure. And oh. not every writer can do that. No. I agree. I think there's something um, when when landscape and plot become fused, where the landscape is the story, I think is such an extraordinary thing to pull off because a, a, an elegant turn of phrase about the shape of a tree is... I'm not going to say anyone can do it, but it's a little more achievable. But a turn of phrase where the shape of the tree informs your understanding of your lead character's frame of mind or portends what awaits or is embedded in in a sense of urgency about what's happening in the plot. That, to me, I, I wholeheartedly agree, I think is the hallmark of, a, of great, great literature. I really do. And the other thing I I would say about Lord of the Rings is there's something very classical about the way it deals with catharsis. Mm. So pity, pity and fear. Mm. And that although he wasn't a classicist himself, there is that classical sense of pity, fear and tragedy and how you make sense of these things in the course of everyday existence i i feel like a kind of a flavor of herodotus or thucydides especially thucydides in a funny way with the peloponnesian history of the peloponnesian war of that sense that these things happens and the humans who were involved in it that as readers you can sympathize with them going off on a quest mm. whether it's to fight the spartans or to get rid of the ring that not all will survive, others will suffer really tragic, awful deaths where they will be forgotten, dying in a cold field somewhere, no one's going to rescue them. Mm -hmm. And therefore, how do you make sense of that, which is what the Athenians were asking, and it's what Tolkien is asking, is that in an epic battle or quest where survival is only going to be granted to the few, Mm. and many of those few won't be deserving. Mm. How do you make sense of it? Mm. When what, what, what is this moral world that you live in? Mm-hmm. The, the other author who I think does this extremely well, and you may smile when I say that, is um, J.K. Rowling. Hmm. That, and in particular, the penultimate book, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, mm. in that the what's interesting to me about that book is that the character of Snape, who has to kill the headmaster of Hogwarts, Dumbledore, mm. commits a, an act which is very against his own interests. Mm. He's sacrificing his reputation in allowing himself to be seen as a traitor mm-hmm. to the side of the good. And he does that. He loses his friends. He's with people that he actually despises, Voldemort and everyone else, for a higher purpose. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's a story about duty and sacrifice and rather like the Longbottom characters mm. who exist. So there's Neville Longbottom, who's the counterpart to Harry Potter, whose parents were destroyed by Voldemort, but they didn't die in a heroic fashion. They were simply destroyed protecting Harry. Right. And the only people who ever go and visit Neville Longbottom's brave and heroic parents are Neville and his grandmother mm. who live in poverty because nobody looks after them and there's no one bringing any money. And it's a very, that is a very subtle, very important, extremely moral message that yeah. runs through this book. And at the end, Snape is killed protecting Harry. Mm. And only then does Harry realise how heroic Snape has been. Right. So for me, you know, Thucydides, Tolkien, there's a through line yeah it's lovely I love that and I love hearing that because I I I feel the same way about J.K. Rowling I think those books are extraordinary I read them when they came out with no children to read them to and really no excuse other than just fascination I think I pretended to be reading them to my little brother but I wasn't I just devoured them on my own and I remember too feeling far less articulately that there was a continuum that this belonged in the path of great literature not just children's literature but but there is a there was a direct relationship between this and what am I talking about? The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I was kept thinking wardrobe. I couldn't get the other nouns in there. And also with Greek mythology, there felt like this, this world where you step through and everything is slightly off. And yet it has its entire, the entire moral universe of it is intact, that the center of gravity might be different, but everything else is um, contiguous with that new center of gravity, that nothing else has shifted. And that I think replicates to a degree what it is to be a child, that you are in your own little center of gravity, the, the center of which is you, and you're aware that there's a larger one that the adults are living in, which is quite separate to yours, and the needs and the, uh, you know, priorities of that world are not yours. And yet somehow these two worlds have to coexist at the same time. And these needs have to be sort of meted out. And maybe yours will have to be sacrificed to your parents or to the sort of adult world. It seems to me there's a, consciously or not, but it, I think that's partly why it chimed, at least with me as a child or as an emerging adult, was this sense of the, the, the conflict between my immediate interests and the larger, the larger ones of a, of a world I wasn't fully in yet as, an, as a grown-up. Yes, I agree. That's nicely put. Let's talk about your next book, which is I was I had, so funny. I was I had been about to say how interesting earlier when we were talking about Pride and Prejudice that all your authors had been women, but then they're not because of Tolkien, who also who didn't have a woman in his book or had one, as you say. Let's talk about your next book, Britain's Forging the Nation, which was published in 1992 by Linda Colley. Colley, do you Colley? Yeah. Colley. Tell me about this. I was fascinated reading about this. I hadn't heard of this book. Well, this book and the next book we're going to talk about, I read when I was a student. And when I had originally gone to university, I had thought that perhaps I might want to read philosophy and mm. go into philosophy. And Linda Colley's book, Forging the Nation, is a, a masterwork of its kind. She asked the question, how did this small island of very distinct provinces, Scotland, Wales, Ireland... England, uh, come together after uh, 1704, not just politically, but also in terms of its national identity. Mm. And she wrote a kind of history that 
is still totally modern today. It was it is 360 history. So it wasn't simply political. She also used cartoons. It's cultural. She looks at, she uses paintings. She quotes from songs. Mm. It's, it's a way of writing. It's a way of imagining lived history alongside intellectual history. Now, those that can do it well, and she is a master at it. Mm. it it's inspiring. And it made me want to become a historian. Oh, interesting. And, it really did. And, and it made me ask questions. So even if I didn't agree with every one of her conclusions, mm-hmm. nevertheless, it showed me that there was a completely different way of asking questions about history. And that what might be enlightening to one set of historians is completely different from what's enlightening to another set of historians. Mm-hmm. And because I believe that, she, I think partly because she's a woman historian, she was able to do without shoehorning it in to look at the role that women played Mm. in history and in the role of forging British identity. And one of the most interesting aspects that she did identify was how women, having been excluded from the inner political arena at in Parliament, they're, they're not able to take part in political debates, they can't vote, mm. they can't pass legislation. So they developed an outside moral voice through campaigning. So mm. when the question of the slave trade came up in the 1790s, it was women who took that campaign public mm. and organised the first boycott in the world, the sugar boycott. Mm. And that sugar boycott forced the West Indian MPs and slave traders to the table. Wow. Because, yeah, I mean, and that, and that was women doing, doing that. I didn't and, know that. That's wonderful. I, I know. It's a marvelous thing. And these women in the 18th century set the whole tenor and shape of how you get this Victorian ideal in the 19th century mm-hmm. of what does the angel in the home do? She is the moral arbiter mm-hmm. of both the family and the heart of the nation. Mm-hmm. But it's satirized by Dickens as Mrs. Jellyby in Bleak House, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, the woman who has a, the beating conscience and consciousness mm-hmm. that she, by uniting with others, can change the way society behaves, mm. whether it's slavery, emancipation, education, mm-hmm. children working in the mines, you name it. Mm. And did you find that not only this was a book that asked history questions in a different way, but it was also answering those questions in a different way? Is there? Yes, a... absolutely. Also, she's a beautiful writer. Mm. She is a craftsman. Right. And so she taught me that if I wanted to write history, I could write as I wanted to write, mm. that sentences matter. Yes. Entertainment matters. Yes. Uh, and, and that it was... The first time I really saw that that marriage mm. between a book written for the wider public with blue chip ideas mm. and masterful execution. Mm. How wonderful. I think that's an exact description of your work too. So how lovely that you <laughs> how lovely that you found it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, tell me about your next book, which is In a Different Voice, Psychological Theory and Women's Development, published in 1982 by Carol Gilligan. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated reading about this too. Tell me when you tell me when you came to this book. I, I love one of the things that I read was it, it, the quote that said the little book that started a revolution, which I just thought was as as good a cover blurb as you could hope for as an author yes that's right so carol gilligan's in a different voice i also read this as a student Mm. and it went hand in hand with how i felt about linda colley's book Mm. 
that this too is a book that's written for the public and yet it's incredibly profound and I suppose those two books shaped my career in that I emerged believing that there is no idea that is too difficult that it can't be explained to the widest possible audience. Mm. There, there is, there's nothing secret in the academy that can't be shared or debated mm. and made part of the general conversation. Mm. And if it's not, it's the fault of the writer, the academic who wants to share or engage in those ideas. It isn't the fault of the public. Right. Interesting. What was it about that her book? What in what in hers particularly was it? Talk talk to me about the book about about what it was in that that spoke to you particularly. So apart from its execution, what's important and interesting about Carol Gilligan's book is that she isn't afraid to highlight the difficult subject is which is that do men and women think differently Hmm. and if they think differently how does that impact the fundamental structure of society which is how do we all get along with each other Mm -hmm. Uh, and you can call that justice you can call that law you can call that morality Mm -hmm. but essentially it is how do you go from the one to the many Mm. now i don't agree with again i don't agree with everything that carol gilligan says about how little girls and little boys make their moral choices and how they're formed nevertheless even if you don't agree with her with her in totality Mm -hmm. there are some i believe essential truths that she highlighted and pinpointed which is the way for example that the emphasis we put on girls to connect Mm. has a huge impact on the way they perceive what their moral choices are and should be. Uh, so that for boys growing up, if they are encouraged to compete, mm-hmm. which means setting up hierarchies, mm-hmm. which means that they are encouraged to keep their emotions out of the game that they are playing because it's about winning. Mm-hmm. And if you lose, you have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And if, it doesn't matter how the other person feels about losing, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for girls, if it's, if it's about making sure that everyone is included or everyone's feelings Mm -hmm. is these feelings are being nurtured or not being hurt that they are nurturing those around them then there are more there are moral choices aren't going to be about hierarchies Mm -hmm. they're going to be about what's best for everyone Mm -hmm. and the example that carol gilligan gave is the dilemma of the man who needs to obtain medicine for his sick wife he can't afford to buy it should he steal it or not? Mm. And when this question apparently was posed to these girls and boys, the boys would either say, well, stealing is wrong. Mm. No, he shouldn't. Mm. Or perhaps they might say, even though stealing is wrong, saving a life is more important. So yes, he should. But the girls would say, well, it depends. (laughs) How sick is the wife? (laughs) Could you go and maybe talk to the druggist first? And this was seen as a way of girls just simply not being able to understand what a moral choice is. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> yes. And uh, which is, no, they, they completely understand what that moral choice is. Uh, but they partly through, you could say it's conditioning or just how females have an approach to certain mm-hmm. life choices, they refuse to be put into that box. Mm-hmm. But where you take that argument is uh, key. So, for example, if you take that argument at face value, then you'll say women are emotional, men are rational. Right. Women feel 
men think. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so for me, the Carol Gilligan book raised a thousand questions. Yeah. And it doesn't, they don't need to be answered. It's just the asking yeah. that is important. It's interesting because you've got five children, so you have many more experiences with this. But as a mother of one of each, I see it all the time uh, in that, just to expand on what you were saying, I think my daughter lives in a horizontal world and my son lives in a vertical one. And I don't think we have a particularly gendered approach to our parenting, but Billy from the age of two has wanted a pink dress and a wand and a unicorn to ride and glitter. I'm not much of a glitter girl myself, so this is something she has arrived at all by herself. And my son wants to know who's older and who's younger than him all the time. That's really, that's an important thing for him to know. And he's three and he's already ageist which is really troubling (laughs) but these are things that they have they arrived with this this is in them and I look for ways to make him more horizontal and her (laughs) to stand more vertically and I think I feel like that's sort of the best one can do is is you're working with a status quo that you hope has some elasticity to it and that you can widen them into a a bigger worldview and an understanding that there are options and there are other ways to be, that Jakey can fall over and be sad and upset and come and ask for a hug and then keep running or keep competing, or that he can win and still turn around and look back and go, but Bubby's sad, let me go and give her a hug. You know, that's the sort of ideal I guess I don't know I'm intrigued by the book that you, by the Carol Gilligan book now it makes me want to go and read it well I think you raise a very important point and it's simplistic to say that biology is destiny mm. because I mean that's like saying that your DNA is destiny and if that were the case then why do we bother trying you know right. in anything however it's a fact that women have more oxytocin than men Mm. and what is this hormone oxytocin well we call it the tendon befriend hormone Mm. and it's a fact that you know when we we give birth that is the hormone that is released which ensures that no matter how badly we feel we have this overwhelming urge to look after the baby that's just been handed to us Mm -hmm. which we didn't have a minute ago now we have it now we love it and now we want to feed it right and that in a dangerous situation where you know life is at stake Adrenaline will spike in men and oxytocin will spike in women. They, they, that is why they will go against a crowd to go and find a child. Even if the crowd is, you know, going to mow them down, they mm. will fight back mm. and whatever. I mean, these, these, you know, these, these are just observable traits that, that happen. Sure. And Charles Darwin wasn't completely wrong. In fact, he wasn't wrong at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you look at the differences. The point is not that we have sexual differences, because we do. The point is... What do you do with them? Mm. That's the key thing here. Right. There's been a tendency in the last few years to deny that there is something known as the female experience or the male experience. And that is a mistake mm. because puberty, menstruation, menopause, not everyone goes through childbirth, mm. but those who do, those are primal experiences mm-hmm. that are genetic. And together they make the sum of what the female experience can be in its many shades. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with the external sexual parts or sexual organs that we have. Sure. You can add or subtract them, but that is 
the essential experience mm. of being female. Yeah. Does, is this what your new book is about? My new book is a history of women mm. because I, and it goes, it literally goes back three million years. It's a global history of women. Tiny Some subject. It's taking me so long. Tiny <laughs> subject. Can't think why you've taken so long over it. <laughs> oh, I know it's been very hard, but I really felt that the silencing of women begins with a lack of our own story. Mm. If you can't speak your story, you can't speak with your own voice. Mm. So, I feel it's now my my mission, my purpose is to write this book as a single volume mm. in a way that anyone can get something out of. Mm. Because until we can have a narrative of ourselves that is really blue chip history, mm. then we are at the mercy of those who want to give us a narrative, mm -hmm. whether or not it's true, whether or not it's empowering. Mm -hmm. So... That means looking at, for example, the two millennia before the Greeks and the Romans, because I think that most women believe that before the birth of classical civilization, there were just some hairy men driving around in chariots, <laughs> you know, and that women Sounds didn't really right. do anything. Yeah. Is that true? Mm. Now, one of the, I touched on it a bit in the series, when mm. we looked at Enhedwana, the first named writer in history, who wrote in 2300 BC wow. and named herself and said, you know, I am in Hedwana, this has never been done before. Hmm. And she developed that concept, I, I am, I feel, hmm. I am writing. I exist. Yeah. <laughs> I exist. Yeah. And to, to, to know that A, a woman did this, which is just a, a lovely thing to know that we contributed mm. to history because we're always being told that we didn't. Right. <laughs> and and then to have that statement of not just I am, but a kind of female I am mm. is important. Yeah, very much so. Imperative. And in this climate, more than ever, I think. What a wonderful, wonderful time to be writing this book. It really is. I just wish I could. I was faster at it. Unfortunately, I'm the kind of writer that takes a day to write a paragraph. I wish I wasn't that person. I wish I was somebody else. <laughs> I think uh, I think it pays off, Amanda. I really do. <laughs> take the day. Take the day you need. We need the book and we need the book that you're writing. So uh, I say take the time you need to take. Um, <laughs> Thank you. If you could, impossible question. If you could only take one book to your desert island, it could be one of these five or it could be another. Which book would it be? Well, I always used to say it would be Lord of the Rings. Hmm. Because by the time I'd got to the end, I would have forgotten the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are you still taking that? Is that still I mean, your book? Yeah, for now I'm happy to take that. Yeah. I have to read it. I've only ever read The Hobbit. I have, the, I have it sitting on a shelf reproaching me for years and years, but I think maybe time. I've always thought oh, it was yeah. too dry, but maybe I'll... I think this re reawoken my interest in it, I have to say. Well, when you have a cold... And you're confined to your bed. I think that's a good time to give you some leisure time. Yeah. I am never <laughs> confined to my bed with the two children on top of me. There's no reading Lord of the Rings while I still have these little ones. Um, that's true. Maybe I'll read it to them one day. Thank you so, so much for doing the podcast. This was such a pleasure and a privilege. It really was. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, it's been, it's been a great pleasure for me. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Not at all. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes on the website. It really makes a difference. Rate us, give us some stars, let your friends know, let your family know, tell everyone you can. 
Go to the website bookishwithsonyawalga.com if you want to find out about any of the books that you heard about. We list there not only the five favorites, but every single book that is referenced. You can also buy the books through the website and uh, we make a tiny, tiny little percentage of whatever you buy through the website. So if you are interested, please go ahead and click on that. You can find us on Facebook. We have a Bookish with Sonia Walger page. You can find us on Twitter with at Bookish Sonia or at SoniaWalger.com. And you could also email me through the info at Bookish with page. If you hit on contact, it'll just automatically pop up as an email there. So if you have any ideas for guests that you'd like to hear from, or thoughts that you have about the show, please don't hesitate to share them there. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show.